0: This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we now bring you our Voices of the Holocaust series, sponsored by the USC Shoah Foundation. Today's episode is part one of a four-part feature on the life of Henry Rosmarin, brought to us by our very own Joey Cortez.
1: my candelas, Your normal life is all of a sudden uprooted.
2: A happy life in the small coal mining town of Szeminowice, Poland, before World War II. Henry Rosemarin was born into an Orthodox Jewish family, immersed in music, such as the lullaby his mother sang to him as a child. The lullaby Henry is singing right now.
1: One day, you're a member of a a family. Your family is together. You're in your comfortable apartment. You're being looked after. You're being provided for. Food, clothes, clothing was no problem.
2: And then, on September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded his homeland.
1: And the next day, you, you homeless. That was quite a change. And That was the rude and shocking awakening of uh, explosion, bombs. The windows begin to 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 rattle, almost like an earthquake or so. And we jumped out of bed it was, it was before dawn all right at dawn Friday morning September 1st my parents started uh, it turn on the light quick looking out the window we could see smoke and my father said, "Oh my god The w- war broke out and another a bump and another explosion and I could see Adam and Bev ashen faces, white faces. A few minutes later, I mean, or maybe half an hour later, I could see my folks packing and say, We say, we've got to get out of here. And it wasn't about eight, nine o'clock when I first went to the bakery to pick up some goods. They were at a closing shop. People were panicking. I remember the neighbors who were so friendly. All of a sudden, I remember one neighbor putting on an armband with a swastika on it and and, and, and accosting my father in and with a high hitler sign and, and and speaking german all of a sudden he forgot polish or, or overnight this was a rude awakening the uh, nazi party which was un, until then outlawed I was like underground all of a sudden they, they you know they came out of the woodwork and my folks say we're going Get out of here until things calm down. They had no idea what's going to be with it. it, was, it was going to be bombing, and uh, so we better get out of here. We go back to to challenge, which is a neighboring town. You would like to think when you pack something in a hurry that you take you know, important things. Yeah, I took my I took my ball, <laughs> my soccer ball, <laughs> and a couple books. I had a harmonica, which my uncle bought me before the war. And I had a little book with it, but with music. So I took that, a shirt, extra pair of shoes, the essentials. And said, so, well, what, we, we, we'll be back here anyhow. It's just, it's only temporary, you know. So we thought this will blow over, maybe the March 2 besides the Polish army is going to be beating back pretty soon. And we will we, we'll be back home.
2: That couldn't be further from the truth a wave of destruction was about to crash over Poland. And little did Henry know that one of those items that he packed with him for his escape to Celaz, his harmonica, would keep his head above water. More on that later.
1: It took us uh, something like an hour and a half, two hours in foot, to reach that neighboring town of Celaz. And I remember on the way... Uh, we went through open field. I, I remember two, two, three guys in, laying with a, a machine gun in a rifle and shooting up in the sky. And we, and we had to be passing by that narrow road with our little wagon. All of a sudden, they start shooting at this at this uh, aircraft. And before, in no time, two, three aircrafts came and started circling around, around us and showering us with machine gun bullets. Um, so my dad jumped on the ditch, he said, let's go, jump in the ditch real quick. So we went in the ditch and lay flat. and bullets were you know, falling all around us because of the two or three guys who were shooting against that airplane. So we almost got, we got hurt right there. And we came to Czalec, and the same story there. Everybody else is packing, they're leaving too. Where are you going? Well, the Germans are advancing. We're close to the German border. We gotta go deeper into Poland. How do you go? Trains are not running, because the Polish army confiscated most major train routes. You have no automobile, so you walk. So we walked like that for three days, until the German army caught up with us and it was useless. But they were all around us, they encircled us anyhow. So that's when the first few days of living under the German occupation began which, as you know, lasted for almost a good five and a half years.
0: You've been listening to the first of our four-part feature on the life of Henry Rosmarin, and we'd like to give a special thank you to the USC Shoah Foundation that's graciously given us access to their library of over 53,000 testimonials of survivors, liberators, witnesses, and participants of the Holocaust. You too can sign up to view all of their testimonies at sfi.usc.edu, a tremendous resource to help us honor the memory of all of those who suffered at the hands of anti-Semitic Nazi Germany. And by the way, a recent poll identified that two-thirds of millennials could not identify what or where Auschwitz is or was. After the break more of Henry Rosmarin's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back to the first of our four-part feature on the life of Henry Rosmarin, a 13-year-old Polish Jew who, after an unsuccessful attempt to escape the Nazi invasion of Poland with his family, was brought back to the nearby town of Chilaz.
1: Before the ghetto was established, when we came to Chilaz, it was a hot September.
2: And things were about to get hotter. The Germans, within days of invading burned down their synagogue in Chalaz. Now, illegal to practice their Jewish faith, a Jewish family began holding services in secrecy. A
1: few weeks later, high holidays came in 1939, and my father says, let's go to
2: services. And I said, I don't wanna go. She says, no, no, you're coming with me. And good thing he did, because Henry would meet somebody who would leave a lasting impression.
1: I start perspiring, and most people would perspire, and I, I can still smell the perspiration today. And I said, I gotta get out of here. So I went outside, and I see three or four girls looking at, looking out, and they're giggling from the window. And kind of, you know, cute-looking girls. So, I, so I, I said, hey, why don't you go come down? Let's talk a little bit. One, what I remember distinctly, she caught my eye. Beautiful girl, beautiful dark eyes, dark hair, pigtails, you know. Uh, gosh, complexion like a, a peach and cream, you know. And I said, well, gosh, what a beautiful, this is a, God's uh, greatest creation here. And I says, what's your name? Come on down. And I told them my name, you know. So they came down, we talked, and uh, and we talked. We said, we should get together sometimes. And and uh, we, we talked a little more about, about school, what grade are you, and turned out they were younger than I, I was, uh, but later on, I, I started looking for her and I found her in the ghetto and we stuck up a friendship.
2: And perhaps a little more than a friendship. Henry told Janet, when all of this is over, we should find each other and we should get married and make a life together. But for now, it was this relationship that would help Henry get through the trials to come. The Nazis gathered all the Jews, placed them in segregated ghettos, and forced all those capable to work.
1: By that time, I was already 15. So they gave me a shovel, a broom, a pick from breaking stones, crushing stones, to, in the wintertime, clearing snow for the the Germans to, uh, supplies to pass through and all that. So just manual labor.
2: After doing that for a year, Henry, his brother Max, and his father were drafted to work in a ceramic factory for two years, run by a German who, while was intimidating, Henry describes as a small-time Oscar Schindler. You see, Schindler was a man who ran one of these manufacturing camps, convincing and paying off Nazi officials to keep his Jewish workers at his facilities, where he treated them with dignity and respect, and ultimately helping save the lives of over 1,200
1: Jews. Later, now like 1942, when deportations began out of the ghetto, people were, they were taking people left and right. He would give us special papers uh, stating that we are doing very important work. So he actually was trying and, and to a certain degree save our life as long as he could.
2: But unlike Schindler, he unfortunately couldn't keep it up. ...through the end of the
1: war. All of a sudden, we started missing people. And someone would say, you know, they were deporting us. We thought maybe they would leave us alone already in the ghetto... ...but it wasn't good enough for them. They had to cleanse the territory from what they called Judenrein. Juden means Jew, Rein means clean. Clean of the Jews.
2: The facility of their small-time Oscar Schindler would be dissolved... In six
1: weeks, uh, we're getting into into the painful part of of my recollections now. They took us in this Shcherbinyans in this orphanage building, and they were shipping up and up shipping out in the morning. The next thing I know, somebody takes a list and calls names, and they tell us Austreten, which is uh, out of formation to the right. So it's my brother and I. But my mother was still to the left with the other women.
2: Trying to comprehend this chaos, Henry and his brother Max were herded into a group on the right comprised of the young and the capable, the useful, those not useful, those likely deemed expendable, remained on the left.
1: And my brother did a heroic act Stepping up to an assessment who has a, a, like a baseball bat in his hand, who is hitting left and right for, for any misstep, and, and told him, he, he, her Mother is there too. She works also at a factory. Actually, she didn't, but, but he, he was just fibbing that she's needed too because she, she works in the kitchen. She cooks for, for the workers. And the first thing the assessment did is, is slept him left and right. Which wasn't so bad because the one before that he hit with his piece of wood and split. Uh, yeah, and I saw blood running out of the head. And two sisters from our ghetto. This picture was always being in front of my because they were screaming, "Mother, mommy, mom!" And he kept hitting them. And you know, and and they went to, to another group, over to the left, and he. Minutes later, my brother steps in front of this beast and tells him about my, our mother, who's, who's dead in that group, and she's needed in a, in a factory because they feed us. And so he slapped them left and right and told them, you have a lot of guts, you stinking Jew. The next thing he said, so which one is you? Which one is your filthed Jewess? He pointed, they wanted to check it cold. Yeah. And she said, no, come on, come on. Get out, and she, get out he pulled out miraculously. And she, too, was safe for another six weeks.
2: But then, Henry, his mother, his father, and all the other Jews were gathered for deportation.
1: They marched us to a place like a uh, massacre field, and we had to sit squ- squatting
2: down. Panicked, his brother, who was supposed to be serving water to German soldiers, instead searched for Henry and his parents to deliver a stark
1: warning. He says, you guys try to get to my work camp.
2: Opposed to concentration camps, which were far worse. And
1: he, he said, Mom, you try to faint. I'll, I'll drag you out to, to another group. And she couldn't faint. You know, he says, no, 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 we'll be OK. You know? So in the meantime, the suspect saw me. He says, hey, you filthy. Where's the water? What's the matter with you? Says, oh, yeah. He says, coming, coming, So That's the last time I saw him. I didn't see him anymore. We're sitting there for another half an hour, another hour, and the sun is bearing down, and I was getting hot and with parched lips, you know. And I oh, would give anything for some water. All of a sudden, some more shouts. Men from 18 to 35 to the right, uh, stand up to the right. So my mom started pushing me. She says, Go, they're calling you. I said, No, 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 it's not me. She says, They're calling the men from 18 to 35. She says, Go, go, there's no time, go. You're going to a war camp. He said, I'll probably go with the women to the kitchen. I said, just go, listen to the orders. I said, no, I'm not 18. She says, you are, you are 18. I said, no, I don't want to go. She says, yes, you go. And she sort of pushed me. And when she pushed me out, you know, I sort of have stood up and she pushed me. I, I fell down and I got up. And, and before I know, somebody else kicked me in the assessment, grabbed me by my neck and threw me over to the next bunch. And I, and I kept looking back and I said, Mom? And before, I didn't see her anymore. And I kept looking, Where, where's Mom? Yeah.
2: Hard to see, with the sun beating down on him, Henry desperately looked
1: for his mother. And I spotted this, my mom it wore it a, a coat. She loved it very much. I remember she bought a shirt before the war. It was a blue, a, a blue and white checkered code and she, she took that code along and I spotted the checkered code and I waved to her and she waved back yeah, I said something I love you, yeah, you know, and she shouted back I, I couldn't hear what she shouted back that's, that's the last time I saw her Excuse me. Mm-hmm. You know, my checkered coat stands out in my mind. I never, in my life, I never, I, I never bought a piece of cloth, a, a jacket or a coat that could be blue and white checkered, and I never would wear it.
2: On the next episode of Voices of the Holocaust.
1: That single piece is responsible for my survival because of that harmonica. I, I, I think my, my my days were numbered in, in perhaps in single-digit numbers. Uh, I wouldn't have lasted a, a, week, uh, a week, perhaps.
2: Tune in to the next episode to find out how Henry's harmonica would save his life. For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez.
0: Our American Stories, and Jesse, I'm not sure what that music is, but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack.
3: The Visioneers.
0: Oh, The Visioneers. I love it. I love it. It sounds like something that our our friend Trenton, uh, Quentin, not Trenton, Quentin Tarantino.
3: It's very California.
0: It is very California. Love it. Recently, we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but it's not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom, this, bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse.
3: I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Baugh. But Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of malasia What is malasia you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves.
4: malasia is a micronation. Basically, it's a, a tiny self-declared country. Uh, we sort of see it as a um, expression, a self-expression, uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Malasia that a regular country would have that 's why we have our own post office phone system and so forth like that. Um, Malasia was originally founded uh, in 1977 uh, My friend James and I uh, we saw a movie called "The Mouse that Roared" uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo- of that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of volstein and He, at that time, and um, he was king, I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years. And then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malaysia.
3: Now, the Republic of Malaysia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation-state completely surrounded by the United States. And as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes—oh, there get, you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would. Be... Can someone move to Malaysia or apply for citizenship?
4: Well, actually, no, we do not um, allow other people to move in and become, and become citizens of Malaysia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East. It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll i get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. They see this as a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family
3: members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation?
4: The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, We do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh,
3: This guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now.
4: Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times, because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time, I was the prime minister. It was the grand public of Volstein at that time, and I was the prime minister, and I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would rost us up out of our sleep, and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po- a post, because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rousted out of my sleep one too many times, so I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. And then a few years ago, I was reading through my records, and I pulled this thing out. And I said, well, that's kind of cute. That's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called ernst Teilman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the, to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany. At least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island. It's uninhabited except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. Yeah. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever. For as long as at least the embargo goes on, we would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty
3: place. Nice. Making peace with Marine Iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And then in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady.
4: I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that MySpace. popular anymore. But it was a big thing back a few <laughs> years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way, and she... I didn't really present myself as kind of like a it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country, and she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, and it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since.
3: What are some of like your house rules or laws I guess you would call them?
4: Uh, like all countries, Malaysia uh, has its own customs uh, standards and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, There was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago, and one of the opening splash things always was a a little sign next to a meadow under a tree, and one time it said no walruses. And my my, uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny, so we put that on there. Uh, No catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malawi. We're in the desert, but they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago, and FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple of things uh, that you can't bring: no plastic bags, bad for the environment; no incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Cokins measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone... Uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone, off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia.
3: Now, do you, do you always dress like that?
4: <laughs> I dress like a dictator, well, I mean, because it's kind of a styling thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line, and I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. It wasn't my thing, so wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this as a is a dictatorship. Malaysia is a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country, and so uh, and we have you know have a good time. It's a it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship.
3: It's a family country, he says. Kevin Baugh, one of a kind, the micro nation of Molossia. Look him up, pay him a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is our American stories.
0: Ah, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much. Just bat,
3: exactly what you heard.
0: Bat out there crazy. Yeah. Nice guy, though. Hey, that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story if you want to be. This is Our American Stories. Kevin, the dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. Our American Stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I was my husband's caregiver as he was dying of cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us.
5: Almost 12 years ago, my world as I knew it ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, But I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days. I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith.
6: And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude.
5: I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, Being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-Macgyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that, but I didn't want to be less than 100 percent present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs he slept on the family room sofa and I slept on the floor next to him. At the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day, of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary, and then began praying it daily, even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, The repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse. Within easy reach, while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself That she had changed her appearance and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself but just then Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive ruthlessly truthful way he had and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man even as compromised as he is Needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver. It was his last, best gift to me.
0: And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story, in a way her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we love bringing classic American stories, read by great readers, to you, whenever we can. And in the past, we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven, and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem. We had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer. We heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense, Emerson's Self-Reliance, and of course we heard Robert Frost read Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today, we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway, entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacy Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter.
7: He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering. His face was white. And he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Schatz? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. ''You go up to bed,'' I said. ''You're sick.'' ''I'm all right,'' he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. ''What is it?'' I asked him. ''102.'' Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. ''The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition,'' he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. "'Do you want me to read to you?' "'All right, if you want to,' said the boy. His face was very white and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Shots? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. It would have been natural for him to go to sleep, but when I looked up he was looking at the foot of the bed. "'looking very strangely. "'Why don't you try to go to sleep? "'I'll wake you up for the medicine. "'I'd rather stay awake.' "'After a while, he said to me, "'You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, "'if it bothers you.' "'It doesn't bother me. "'No, I mean, you don't have to stay "'if it's going to bother you.' "'I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, "'and after giving him the prescribed capsules "'at eleven o'clock, "'I went out for a while. "'It was a bright, cold day, The ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy springy brush... They made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him. White-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed, I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. "'I'm taking it easy,' he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. "'Take this with water.' "'Do you think it will do any good?' "'Of course it will.' I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. "'About what time do you think I'm going to die?' he asked. "'What?' "'About how long will it be before I die?' "'You are not going to die. What's the matter with you?' "'Yes, I am. I heard him say a 102. "'People don't die with a fever of 102. That's a silly way to talk. "'I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me, "'You can't live with 44 degrees. I've got a 102.' "'He had been waiting to die all day, ever since 9 o'clock in the morning. "'You poor shots,' I said. "'Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers.' You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed, too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack. And he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance.
0: A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner Take Nothing. A day's wait is the story. Pick up Winner Take Nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories. Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country has ever seen. This is Our American Stories... This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to hear from some of the greatest writers in this country, and some of our favorites are at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, We've talked to Heidi Mitchell, I don't know, probably a dozen times up till now, and she has a terrific weekly column that we urge everyone to go and read. And again, we do no politics here, no debating here, but we love good stories and interesting, interesting writers. And Elizabeth Bernstein is a writer at the Wall Street Journal and a columnist there. Psychology and relationships are her beat, and we love those subjects, too. And she had a column that was called Fine-Tune Your BS Detector. You'll need it. And Elizabeth joins us now. Elizabeth, why did you write this? What about right now says we need to be fine-tuning our BS detectors?
6: The first is I was attending a psychology conference in Atlanta a month or so ago, and there was a whole presentation. Researchers, psychologists, and actually computer scientists had started to research how to detect and how to confront BS. And the reason they're doing it, so my second reason for wanting to write this, first I was intrigued that they were actually Studying, trying to quantify this in a scientific way, BS. But also, there's so much more of it now, uh, or it's it's been around forever, really. But it's spreading faster and farther now because of the internet, because of bots that go on the internet. They're not even people that are spreading it with intent to harm. So um, these two things together, the fact that scientists are studying it and it's spreading farther, we have to be more careful about it. Made me think, wow, that's something we should look at.
0: And by the way, this was the society. for Personality and Social Psychology, and the title of one particular symposium was B.S.ing Empirical and Experiential Examinations of a Pervasive Social Behavior. So let's ask, what is B.S.?
6: So BS is a form of persuasion, and uh, it, the, the user is aiming to impress the listener by employing a blatant disregard for the facts. So they're just it's, it's different than lying. Lying is, I might want to impress you, I want you to believe what I'm telling you, but I know the facts. I'm just going to ignore them. The BSer could not care less about the facts. I'm just going to let them fly out the window. I'm just going to tell you whatever I want.
0: And by the way, that's why we call them BS artists. I mean, no one ever calls a liar an artist. But you'll also you'll hear it often. Oh, he's a BS artist, right?
6: Yes, yeah, because people sort of do. It. You know, some people do it. We might all somebody might even come to mind right now for each <laughs> one of us. Like we maybe we all know somebody. But um, people do it. They're very good at it. Just and what they're good at is ignoring the facts, like completely not caring at all of those facts out there or not.
7: Right,
0: Harry Frankfurt, in his very interesting book back in two thousand and five, called "On BS." explored how BS is different than lying because liars know the truth and push it aside, while BSers don't necessarily care about the truth at all. Those are your words. So this, in a sense, the BSer is sort of like performance art, and everybody sort of knows what it is if they have any knowledge of the person doing the BSing. And uh, talk, talk about that and why you had said a little bit about how social media was making this more explosive and all the bots. But what was the deeper reason for getting at this? Because something tells me that this is starting to show up on, on couches, in, in disorders, in, I mean, there are, there are real problems attenuated with this now.
6: Problems. Like, look, we're in this uh, culture right now where people claim fake news. That's a lie at everything. It's almost like a defense. I can tell you anything I want. You can tell me back the truth, and I'm going to scream it above you, fake news. It's a lie. You're telling me the wrong. Complete disregard for facts. We are in a culture that is changing fast. You know, I believe over the last few years, with the internet with things going on in the world it's it's uh, the discourse out there is um angry and i I'm not even going to listen to you, I'm just going to shout above you and so in that kind of world right now. You, people who are doing that, who are these BS artists, can uh, be heard. It's almost like it's becoming a norm in certain areas. And so that's why it really does, and with the internet, so Facebook, I can post anything I want. And here's something interesting. People who, when they BS, when they're susceptible to BS, it's, it's the BS that they want to believe, right? right? So I may see something that says, chocolate is healthy. Boy, I really want to believe that one. So I'm going to post that. I'm not going to check the facts. I'm going to tell all of my followers, hey, look at this awesome post. Doesn't matter who wrote it, be it. Chocolate is healthy. So we are susceptible to BS when we want to believe it, when it confirms our own bias. This is all out there in the internet. Everybody's publishing everything they want on their own feeds. This is why in this environment it's really, really important that we sort of get a handle on what information is coming at us and learn to evaluate it. And also it's exactly why the scientists are studying it now. They know that this is becoming more and more hard and more and more important.
0: Yeah, and I think that you had a lot line- there it said basically, if you agreed with the attitude of the BSer, it was great stuff. But if you didn't, it was propaganda, and that tells us. I think that has a lot to do with how we think politically and organize politically in this country, and even on cultural, big cultural questions. And and I think we've all had confirmation bias in this in this area for a long time. But I thought was really fascinating was just the, the what happens with false news and and rumors. And there was a study at MIT that you talked about and wrote about. Uh, Tell the audience about that study, because this is what I found most interesting and and most frightening uh, about your piece.
6: So MIT looked at um, over a decade if I remember they looked at many many um, rumors that were spread information that was spread in tweets and what they found out was that uh, the false information moved faster and farther than the truth. so when the, when the tre- tweets were based on true information, they did not go as far and they did not move as fast as the false one and that is terrifying right now so and what it is showing is what we were talking about that people when you believe it already, when it's your bias say you you know, my dog's a beagle. I want to believe beagles are the best dogs. If I see a tweet that says that, I'm not even going to read the story, see who wrote it. I'm going to move that fast through my Twitter feed, retweet it, because um, it just it is confirming what I want to believe. And so uh, that in this environment, you're right, is terrifying that, that this false information is uh, being spread more than the truth.
0: You know, Michael Crichton, in one of his last interviews on PBS, was asked about—he had written a book about global warming, and he said, There is global warming. I'm a scientist. I'm I'm as good as any scientist, but I don't know how bad it is, and I think the apocalyptic predictions may be over the top. And the interviewer said, Well, why do you think it is that people respond to this the way they do? And he goes, Try asking somebody, Hey, did you have a good day yesterday? And, And you said, Yeah, I had a good day, and everything's good. That's not interesting. But say the seas are overcoming the world and make apocalyptic claims and suddenly you get attention. And I think you're sort of saying the same thing here in terms of false claims. Now, he, he thinks that's exact. Crichton was talking about exaggerated claims. And here we're getting right to the substance of false claims. You also write that false claims can override prior knowledge. So talk about that if you could.
6: So people, we have this prior knowledge. I might, in the back of my head, know that beagles are not actually the best breed of dog. They're a little stubborn. They like to eat everything in sight. But I believe it. I want to believe it. And so when something comes at me that says uh, it's different, especially when it's repeated, this is one key thing, when information, when BS or any information is repeated, even just once, we're more likely to believe it. So uh, I may know in my head... The Beagles are not the best dogs, but if somebody tells me they are, I already want to believe it, and then they repeat it i 'm going to you know go for this this is what i 'm going to go for another issue that 's really interesting in this. Uh, culture that we're in right now is we all use Facebook, Twitter, our social media to um, sort of broadcast who we are. So we want to broadcast something to our, our, basically our like-minded people, our friends. And uh, we tend to then broadcast, we're susceptible then to both broadcast and believe that information that, again, confirms our bias. Uh, so I might be much more likely to read a false claim, decide I'm going to post it on Facebook because it says something about me. Again, maybe it says, you know, just to stick with the dogs, you know, I'm a beagle lover. I'm a dog lover. This is great. Um, It's called tribal epistemology. We're, We're singling to our tribe. This is who I am. These are my beliefs. I share your beliefs. And that's where a lot of fake news comes up too. when we're busy telling each other, see, I'm one of you.
0: Yeah, and who would have known with all this open platform and all this open sourcing that we would become much more tribal as a country? And I think everyone can agree on that fact, that people are now siloing more than ever. And now when you hear a differing opinion, you just call it a lie or you call it false. You can't even stand the idea that someone might disagree with you
6: you can't stand it. We're at a point where we can't even dialogue. And also, I think we see this um, again, we don't want to talk about politics, but we certainly see it in politics. But we see it in science. We see it in all areas. I, You know, we get rid of people on our feeds if they don't show us what we want to see. Like, we just get, you know, oops, that person doesn't agree with me. They might be my sister. I'm going to get rid of her on my feed. Don't want to see what she's saying all day. So um, we tend to get, you're right, much more sort of closed in. Now my Facebook feed is just people like me, because that's what I want to see when I open my phone in the morning. I don't want to see anything that I find disturbing. Um, so you're right, we're getting smaller and smaller. And again, in that space, that's where this BS is thriving.
0: Yep, and we're learning less and less as a result. I mean, no one, you know the idea of a conflict of ideas making and sharpening our ideas, well, this, this BS stuff plays a part of it. We're talking to Elizabeth Bernstein, and she writes a column at the Wall Street Journal on psychology and relationships, and let's keep doing this. I love your work, and we'd love to have you on our show more often. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for doing what you do and for writing this piece. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
6: I have sinned, dear father. Father,
8: I have sinned. Try and help me, father. Won't you let me in?
0: This is Our American Stories, and it's commencement time, and we love bringing you the best commencement speeches of old and new. And today we're bringing you Will Ferrell's University of Southern California commencement speech. He gave this in 2017, and it went exactly how you'd imagine Will Ferrell, well, how he'd give a commencement speech. Here's how he started things off.
8: It is uh, incredibly surreal. One might even say unbelievable that I get to deliver this address to you. As a freshman in the fall of 1986, if you were to come up to me and say that in the year 2017, you, Will Ferrell, will be delivering the commencement address for USC, I would have hugged you <laughs> with tears in my eyes. I then would have asked this person from the future, does that mean I graduated? Yes, you did, says the person from the future. What else can you tell me about the future? Future person turns to me and says, I can tell you that you will become one of the most famous alumni of this university. Mentioned in the same breath as John Wayne, Neil Armstrong, and Rob Kardashian. But it turns out I did graduate in 1990 with a degree in sports information. (laughs) Yes, you heard me, sports information. A program so difficult, so arduous that they discontinued the major eight years after I left. Those of us with sports information degrees are an elite group. We are, we are like the Navy SEALs of USC graduates. There are very few of us, and there was a high dropout rate. So I graduate, and I immediately get a job right out of college working for ESPN, right? Wrong. No, I move right back home. Back home to the mean streets of Irvine, California. <laughs> Yes. Irvine always gets that response. <laughs> Pretty great success story, right? So he put all
0: that hard work into graduating, only to move back in with his mom without any idea of what to do with the rest of his life. Will Farrell then tells us how he met a certain professor who gave him an opportunity to be funny.
8: Yeah, I moved back home for a solid two years, I might add. And I was lucky, actually. Lucky that I had a very supportive and understanding mother who's sitting out there in the crowd who let me move back home. And she recognized that while I had an interest in pursuing sports casting, my gut was telling me that I really wanted to pursue something else. And that something else was comedy. For you see, the seeds for this journey were planted right here on this campus. This campus was a theater or testing lab, if you will. I was always trying to make my friends laugh whenever I could find a moment. I had a, a work-study job at the humanities audiovisual department that would allow me to take off from time to time. By allow me, I mean I would just leave and they didn't notice. Uh, <laughs> so I would literally leave my job if I knew friends were attending class close by and crash a lecture while in character. My good buddy, Emil, who's also here today, Emil, in the house. Emil told me one day that I should crash his thematic options literature class one day. So I cobbled together a janitor's outfit, complete with work gloves, safety goggles, a dangling lit cigarette, and a bucket full of cleaning supplies. And then I proceeded to walk into the class, interrupting the lecture, informing the professor that I'd just been sent from physical plant to clean up a student's vomit. (laughs) True story. What Emil neglected to tell me was that the professor of his class was Ronald Gottesman, a professor who co-edited the Norton Anthology of American Literature. Needless to say, a big-time guy. A month after visiting my, my friend's class as the janitor, I... I was walking through the campus when someone grabbed me by the shoulder, and it was Ron Gottesman. I thought for sure he was going to tell me to never do that again. Instead, what he told me was that he loved my barging in on his class, and that he thought it was one of the funniest things he'd ever seen, and would I please do it again? So, on invitation from Professor Gottesman, I would barge in on his lecture class from time to time, as the guy from Physical Plant coming by to check on things and the professor would joyfully play along. One time I got my hands on a power drill and I just stood outside the classroom door operating the drill for a good minute. Unbeknownst to me, Professor Gottesman was wondering aloud to his class, I wonder if we're about to get a visit from our physical plant guy. (laughs) I then walked in, as if on cue, and the whole class erupted in laughter. After leaving, Professor Gottesman then weaved the surprise visit into his lecture on Walt Whitman and the leaves of grass. Moments like these encouraged me to think that maybe I was funny to whole groups of people who didn't know me. And this wonderful professor had no idea how his encouragement of me to come and interrupt his class, no less, was enough to give myself permission to be silly and weird. Will
0: Ferrell goes on to talk about paying his dues in show business and stand-up comedy and improvisation.
8: My senior year, I would discover a comedy and improv troupe called The Groundlings, located on Melrose Avenue. This was the theater company that, in school that gave the starts to Lorraine Newman, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, Pee Wee Herman, Conan O'Brien, Lisa Kudrow, to name a few. Later, it would become my home, where I would meet the likes of Chris Kattan, Sherry O'Terry, Anna Gasteyer, Chris Parnell, Maya Rudolph, Will Forte, and Kristen Wiig. I went to one of their shows during the spring semester of my senior year, and in fact, got pulled up on stage during an audience participation sketch. I was so afraid and awestruck at what the actors were doing that I didn't utter a word. And even in this moment of abject fear and total failure, I found it to be thrilling to be on that stage. I then knew I wanted to be a comedic actor. So starting in the fall of 1991, for the next three and a half years, I was taking classes and performing in various shows at the Groundlings and around Los Angeles. I was even trying my hand at at stand-up comedy. Not great stand-up, mind you, but enough material to get myself up in front of strangers. I would work the phones to invite all my SC friends to places like Nino's Italian Restaurant in Long Beach, the San Juan Depot in San Juan Capistrano, and the Cannery in Newport Beach. And those members of my Trojan family would always show up, My stand-up act was based mostly on material derived from watching old episodes of Star Trek. My opening joke was to sing the opening theme to Star Trek.
0: when we come back more from will farrell what a commencement speech and what advice what wisdom this is our american stories it's commencement month you're celebrating it in your families and we're bringing you the best and some of the worst commencement speeches of all time as we do every may and june here on our american stories This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Will Farrell's commencement speech to the graduating class from the University of Southern California. What a treat for the students. Uh, this wasn't my graduation speaker, my goodness. I don't even remember. No, actually, it was the governor of New Jersey at the time, whom I can't remember, and it was yeah. dull as paint. There should be a rule. No politician should be allowed to speak On graduation day, that should just be a rule. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Not allowed. By the way, some of the speeches you'll hear and have heard, Denzel Washington, Robert De Niro, his was terrific at NYU. Admiral McRaven, Steve Jobs, his Stanford commencement speech was remarkable. The Farrelly brothers, as funny as it gets. And Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice at Hillsdale College. My goodness, aside of him, nobody knows. A remarkable story a great speech. Now let's return to Will Ferrell at USC. Will told us about a professor that would allow him to be outrageous and interrupt class being the catalyst into his life of comedy. Ferrell had been paying his dues in comedy by doing stand-up and improv and now he continues his story.
8: I wasn't extremely confident that I would succeed during this time period and after moving back to LA there were many a night where in my LA apartment I would sit down to a meal of spaghetti topped with mustard with only twenty dollars in my checking account and I would think to myself oh well, I can always be a substitute school teacher and yes, I was afraid you're never not afraid I'm still afraid I was afraid to write this speech and now I'm I'm just realizing how many people are watching me right now and it's scary (laughs) Can you please look away while I deliver the rest of the speech? <laughs> but my fear of failure never approached in magnitude my fear of what if. What if I never tried at all? By the spring of 1995, producers from Saturday Night Live had come to see the current show at the Groundlings. After two harrowing auditions and two meetings with executive producer Lauren Michaels, which all took place over the course of six weeks, I got the word. I was hired to the cast of Saturday Night Live for the 95-96 season. I couldn't believe it and and even though I went on to enjoy seven seasons on the show, it was a rocky beginning for me. After my first show, one review referred to me as the most annoying newcomer of the new cast. (laughs) Someone showed this to me and I I promptly put it up on the wall in my office, reminding myself that to some people, I will be annoying. Some people will not think I'm funny. And that that's okay. One woman wrote to me and said she hated my portrayal of George W. Bush. It was mean-spirited, not funny, and besides, you have a fat face. (laughs) I wrote her back. And I said, I appreciate your letter, and she was entitled to her opinion. But that my job as a comedian, especially on a show like Saturday Night Live, was to hold up a mirror to our political leaders and engage from time to time in satirical reflection. As for my fat face, you are 100% right. I'm trying to work on that. Please don't hesitate to write me again if you feel like I've lost some weight in my face. The venerable television critic for the Washington Post, Tom Shales, came up to me during my last season of the show. He told me congratulations on my time at the show, and then he apologized for things he had written about me in some of his early reviews of my work. I paused for a second before I spoke, and then I said, how dare you, you son of a bitch. I could tell this startled him. And then I told him I was kidding, and that I'd never read any of his reviews. It was true, I hadn't read his reviews. In fact, I didn't read any reviews because once again, I was too busy throwing darts at the dartboard, all the while facing my fears.
0: When he left after a successful run on Saturday night live, Will Ferrell had yet to reach his full potential. He continues with his story and talks about he defi- and talks about how he defines success.
8: Even as I left SNL, None of the studios were willing to take a chance on me as a comedy star. It took us three years of shopping Anchorman around before anyone would make it. When I left SNL, all I really had was a a movie called Old School that wouldn't be released for another year, and a subpar script that needed a huge rewrite about a man raised by elves at the North Pole. Even now, I still lose out on parts that I want so desperately. My most painful example was losing the role of Queen Elizabeth in the film, The Queen. (laughs) Apparently, it came down to two actors. Myself and Helen Mirren. The rest is history. Dame Helen Mirren, you stole my Oscar! Now one may look at me as having great success, which I have in the strictest sense of the word. And don't get me wrong, I love what I do and I feel so fortunate to get to entertain people. But to me, my definition of success is my 16 and a half year marriage to my beautiful and talented wife, (laughs) Vivica. Success are my three amazing sons, Magnus, 13, Matthias, 10, and Axel, age 7. Right there. Stand up, guys. Take a bow. There you go. (laughs) Success to me is my involvement in the charity Cancer for College, which gives college scholarships to cancer survivors. Started by my great friend and SC alum Craig Pollard, a two time cancer survivor himself, who thought of the charity while we were fraternity brothers at the Delt House up on West Adams. Craig was also one of the members of my Trojan family sitting front and center at my bad stand up comedy shows, cheering me on. No matter how cliche it may sound, you will never truly be successful until you learn to give beyond yourself. Empathy and kindness are the true signs of emotional intelligence. And that's what Viv and I try to teach our boys. Hey, Matthias, get your hands off Axel right now. Stop it. I can see you, okay? In closing, Will Farrell gives
0: his parting advice to the graduating class of the University of Southern California, before he serenades us with his a cappella version of I Will Always Love You.
8: To those of you graduates sitting out there who have a pretty good idea of what you'd like to do with your life, congratulations. For many of you who maybe don't have it all figured out, it's okay. That's the same chair that I sat in. Enjoy the process of your search without succumbing to the pressure of the result. Trust your gut, keep throwing darts at the dartboard, don't listen to the critics, and you will figure it out. Class of 2017, I just want you to know you will never be alone on whatever path you may choose. If you do have a moment where you feel a little down, just think of the support you have from this great Trojan family. And imagine me, literally picture my face, (laughs) singing this song gently into your ear. of 2017 and I
0: There's not much to say after that. Will Farrell dazzling the crowd at the University of Southern California. And it's commencement time. We bring you the best, the worst Robert De Niro, Denzel Washington, Steve Jobs, much more to come through the weeks and the month. This is Our American Stories, Will Farrell's story on commencement day at his alma mater.